Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We've had a lot of snow lately, but you might remember it was a slow start to winter, which means ski resorts in Appalachia have had to get creative with their snowmaking. So we lean into it. It helps us buffer out what might be the new normal with these extreme weather changes. And the entire ski industry is really, really leaning into the snowmaking technology. And West Virginia-raised punk rocker and writer Rob Rufus. I speak with him about his new novel, a pulpy thriller that's also a commentary on the drug epidemic. I don't try to sugarcoat anything, and I, and I feel like it's really a great American tragedy, what's, what's being allowed to happen in West Virginia. We'll also visit one of the region's most well-loved natural places and find out what happens when people trash it. Fireworks, fires, drones, all the things that screw up being out in the, in the wild. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. In the past year, weather events like tornadoes and floods have damaged or destroyed hundreds of homes in Kentucky and killed dozens of people across the state. They've left behind survivors who are living with grief and the effects of trauma after losing homes and loved ones. Now, some rural parts of the state are seeing an increased demand for mental health services. As Corinne Boyer reports, that demand is straining some nonprofit agencies. A little more than 10 months ago, Karina Hall and Danny Spencer lost everything when a flood destroyed their eastern Kentucky home in Beattyville. It's difficult for Hall to talk about that night, and she's still afraid when heavy rains hit. We had to ride on a boat. That was the scariest thing I ever went through, I think, Because <laughs> I can't swim, so if muddy water scares me to death. After the flood with nowhere to go, the couple slept in a van and then stayed in a hotel for a while. But when the Red Cross left, they lost the only place they had to stay. They went back to living in their van. It seemed like it was never ending. And then, you know, you're sitting in this van all day in the heat. I cried every day. I, and the last three days we was in the van, I actually gave up. I truly had given up. Paul tells her story from the couple's new apartment. She says going to counseling and writing about those four months in the van has helped her cope with the trauma of their disaster. Yet on the other side of the state, devastated rural communities are just now reckoning with their own disaster after a tornado outbreak tore through western Kentucky in December. In the small city of Mayfield, an EF4 tornado toppled the courthouse steeple and warped streets of residential homes along with its historic downtown into something unrecognizable. Danielle Sams has worked as a therapist in Mayfield since 2019. People have had difficulty sleeping. They don't like to go to sleep at night or, you know, a storm comes or, you know, it rains or thunder. It gets people a little on edge, and and that's understandable. Sam's works for a community mental health center called Four Rivers Behavioral Health in far western Kentucky. Such centers are one of the few places Kentuckians can get mental health services, but these centers have been understaffed, and now they face the trauma from these recent disasters. This is just going to make the problem tenfold. That's Thelma Hunter, also with Four Rivers Behavioral Health. We were probably having enough problems meeting the needs of the clients we were having already. There just aren't enough clinicians. Hunter's been helping coordinate clinicians and case managers at her center to go to state lodges and motels to help those displaced by the tornadoes. She says even before the storms, clinicians were handling caseloads about double of what's normally expected, up to 250 people for one person. I'm afraid we're going to lose a lot of good clinicians simply from being burnt out not able to meet the needs of everyone. Dave Matthews is with the Center Kentucky River Community Care in eastern Kentucky, where flooding devastated multiple counties. He says disaster survivors go through the same grieving process as when someone dies. As volunteers leave, attention fades from a disaster. And it begins to sink in the seriousness of their plight. Uh, Because at that stage, they really start to mourn. They start to grieve. And they may become very depressed at that point. Those with community mental health centers say they'll stay to serve disaster survivors long after communities are rebuilt. One of those survivors is Barbara Patterson. 
when I laid down at night and shut my eyes, I see the house when I first walked in it at Saturday morning. And it gets, it gets hard. Her Mayfield home was destroyed. She and her husband are sheltered in a local hotel. Patterson has had good days and bad days. She's focused on her immediate needs of housing, laundry, and food. Though she may not seek help with a community mental health center, she does say she'll seek spiritual care from her pastor if she needs it. For now, she waits to see what the future will bring inside the hotel. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Corinne Boyer. Hard times are nothing new to Appalachian communities. Neither is homelessness. We don't often talk about homelessness as an Appalachian issue, but it affects a lot of people across our region, especially in a housing market where rents are spiking and affordable houses quickly get snatched up. A moratorium on evictions expired last year, and now even more people are facing housing instability. And that's in the midst of the Omicron surge. Heather Duncan reports on what the situation looks like for some people in Knoxville, Tennessee. The story originally aired on WUOT back in December. Stephanie McBrayer doesn't fit the typical profile of a homeless person. She rented the same house for five years while running a house cleaning business and caring for an adult son with special needs. But then a year ago, her landlord, who she says was struggling with opioid addiction, evicted her with five days' notice so he could sell the house. Without a lease, McBrayer wasn't protected by the moratorium on evictions during the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID shutdowns also ended her son's daytime support, so McBrayer had to stop working. The two started sleeping in their car in West Knoxville, near her son's part-time job at Publix. With being a single mom raising a special needs adult, it's harder because there's CARM and there's different shelters, but each of those is not like a family where, you know, you could stay together. Their situation illustrates many of the factors that pushed people into homelessness over the last 18 months. The pandemic, the ongoing opioid crisis, and a record housing shortage. McBrayer still had her car, but blankets and a cooler in the back seat don't make a home. It's hard to find somewhere you feel safe. That's what broke my heart. There's nights that I looked over. It's hard just on your own. Imagine having a child or special needs. What do you do as far as restroom? If your gas is low, you know, how do you stay warm? And it's hard as far as eating, meal prepping. And also, like, we would have to go to the pilot over on Level Road so he could go into that restroom and, you know, and change into his uniform to go to work. Like other cities, Knoxville has a chronically homeless population that struggles with addiction and mental illness, especially since the opioid crisis. But in the last few years, a more diverse group of people has lost shelter. More families, seniors, and young adults under age 22. Advocates for those without housing also say they're serving many more working homeless and people who have never been homeless before. Misty Goodwin is Director of Social Services at the Knoxville-Knox County Community Action Committee. She says with two months left in its fiscal year, CAC has helped more than 300 households into permanent housing. That's already 50% more than in the average year. I would say the majority of our families are first-time homeless and seniors. We serve chronically homeless, but the higher number are those that are not. Family Promise is one of the only sheltering programs in Knoxville for families with children. Director John Mark Brown says demand increased, even as the COVID-19 pandemic reduced the number of families the organization could help, from 45 in a year to 20. Family Promise typically sheltered four families at a time by rotating them among local churches. When COVID hit, many participating churches closed. Family Promise had to switch to hotels, which offer less support and cost more, while waits for an apartment got longer. The difficult component is realizing that just a studio apartment in the most affordable, quote-unquote, zip code in uh, Knoxville would be $750. That's no bedrooms. That's just one sink, toilet, shower. I don't think anyone would be inclined to raise one or two or three children in that space. Family Promise and CAC began offering rental assistance to prevent families from being evicted. Using almost $11 million in federal COVID relief funds, CAC alone reached more than 3,500 households in Knox County. It also started arranging emergency shelter for the first time. In the last year, it used more than $1 million from the city of Knoxville to pay for hotel stays for seniors, youth, and homeless families with children. The program is maxed out, serving about 75 households through the winter, Goodwin says. 
Rent in Knoxville has risen 30% over the last year, according to the Knoxville Area Association of Realtors. Although the eviction moratorium that lasted through July was supposed to help struggling renters, Goodwin says some landlords got around it by refusing to renew leases. As the housing crisis has approached, you know, landlords know that they can get more for rent, and they are doing that. So even if a family is working full-time, it's still not enough. And it's quite amazing how many people that are out there in the camps are actually working. We get referrals frequently from West Knox and that area where people are camped out there because they're working out there. The Cedar Bluff area, where public transit hours are limited, has a growing homeless population. Many started coming for help to Cokesbury Church near Pellissippi Parkway, says church outreach coordinator Katie McElwain. One of the first folks that we met that really opened our eyes was working at the IHOP on Level Road. And working full-time, he was working um, night shift because it was a higher pay, and he could sleep during the daytime and feel a little safer. And was such a hard worker, he got promoted to night shift manager, but was living in a tent on Level Road among all of our McMansions out here in West Knoxville. At first, Cokesbury offered food and gas cards so the needy could go to shelters in the Mission District. But homeless neighbors just kept coming. In the middle of the pandemic, the church opened a weekday community center called Fig Tree. The origins of Fig Tree are us discovering this population in West Knoxville, folks living in their cars and choosing not to be in the Mission District because of safety issues and parking issues, or they might be working west, but they need resources. It costs 13 or even $14 to take a shower at the travel centers, just those bare necessities to try to be clean and, and have dignity and go to work. The program provides the homeless with free private showers, laundry, computer access, mail services, meals, and case management. This is our community room where folks can kind of sit down and spread out and visit. And we've got our two bathrooms where there's a private shower. As you can see, we're getting ready for Christmas. So we just did Christmas decorating and had ornament making yesterday, which was fun. Fig Tree connected McBrayer with safe overnight parking and a CAC caseworker who helped her secure a housing voucher in November. A few days after she and her son moved into an apartment, their car broke down. Now McBrayer is hoping the church can help her pay for repairs so she can get back to work. But at least she no longer relies on the car for warmth as the nights dip below freezing. McWin rattles off one story after another of working people doing everything they're asked to do but remaining unable to put a roof over their heads. We have worked with a single mom of five kids who worked so hard to go back to school. She got her GED. She got her nursing degree. She secured that full-time nursing job at the hospital. But before she had passed her nursing boards, the pay is $10 an hour, and there is no way to secure housing for a family the size of six with $10 an hour. COVID-19 and the housing crunch may be temporary, but providers say the need for more local homeless services is permanent. Fortunately, the city of Knoxville has already invested $16.6 million in affordable housing, Goodwin points out. More is on the way, but that doesn't help someone out in the cold tonight. Brown and McElwin say Knoxville needs more overnight shelters for families and individuals still struggling with addiction. We are constantly trying to make sure the conversation becomes how can living in Knoxville be affordable for everyone? And how does that start with caring for folks when they have nowhere else to go? For WUOT News, I'm Heather Duncan. When we come back, we'll meet urban farmers in Pittsburgh. What's at stake is the potential of multiple generations of people who may not get to flourish because they're malnourished or don't have access to food. That's next, Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Research shows that since the pandemic began, more Americans have been living with food insecurity. Some of the people who struggle to afford food also don't have many options to find healthy food. 
Appalachian communities are more likely to have food deserts. And predominantly black neighborhoods have even more limited access to supermarkets compared to white neighborhoods. So some groups are working to make farming more accessible to people of color, as WESA's Onley Herring reports. More than 99% of farm producers in Pennsylvania are white, according to federal estimates. Pittsburgh's Homewood neighborhood, meanwhile, is more than 90% black. That's one reason why the Black Urban Gardeners and Farmers of Pittsburgh Cooperative established its farm in Homewood. We first acquired this land in 2017 from the city of Pittsburgh Adopt-A-Lot process. Raqui Bajamu Osebaru is founder and executive director of the cooperative. There used to be several residential properties here, but the buildings were torn down a long time ago. Now there are raised beds, a honeybee yard, and a hoop house, which is like a greenhouse. The farm holds classes on how to grow different types of food, and Ajamu Osebaru says that's important in a neighborhood that hasn't had a grocery store for more than 25 years. We're serious about autonomy in our community. We can't wait on outside people to help us. Her group is working with other organizations to start a cooperative grocery store owned by community members where local growers can sell their food. Given the past seizure of indigenous lands, unfulfilled promises following slavery, and discriminatory lending practices, Ojamu Osebaru says people in her community feel alienated from farming. So for a long time, and even sometimes today, our people don't, because of slavery, they, we don't want to do that, or we don't want to be getting our hands dirty. But she says if black communities grow more of their own food, they can make it a point of pride and overcome the cultural barriers. Takumba Turner says that shift would come with concrete benefits. He trains high school students at another urban farm in Homewood called Oasis Farm and Fishery. What's at stake is the potential of multiple generations of people who may not get to flourish because they're malnourished or don't have access to food. You know what I'm saying? There's cognitive impacts to your diet, your mood, and your life outcome and expectancy. Turner says racial disparities show that today's food economy doesn't work for poor and minority neighborhoods. He says it's important to promote minority ownership in agriculture. But, you know, ultimately you're still competing. So it's not just like, oh, we're going to form this thing we all own, and then that, that's it. Like, no, we still have to, like, scale this. We still have to operate much like a business. That's why he teaches students at Oasis Farm and Fishery not just the technical aspects of growing food, but also the leadership and thinking skills they'll need to start and run their own ventures. That approach has gotten traction. Since 2019, the state has certified apprenticeships in farm management. Now I'm managing these greens and then I'm managing um, all the herbs because that's what I wanted to do after this. Like, you know, when I have my own farm, I want to have a herb farm. Subarna Sijapati is one of seven apprentices at New Morning Farm in south central PA along the Tuscarora mountain ridge. For his training, he oversees different crops and takes business classes. It's a career change for him. He used to run his own catering company, but he had to close it when COVID hit. He now lives on the farm, an hour and a half from his family in Gettysburg. So Saturday night I go home, and then I spend night Sunday night, drive here early or before in the morning to come back to work. That can be too much to ask of people who might otherwise consider a career in ag. Dan Dalton helps run the apprenticeship program through the nonprofit PASA Sustainable Agriculture. I think if we had more urban farms across the state, we'd have, we could place a lot more folks because they seem to want to be closer to the cities than further out. He says of the roughly 70 people who have been deemed eligible for apprenticeships, only about 25 have matched with farms and gotten training. So building an agricultural workforce, especially a diverse one, might be more a matter of bringing farms to more people than bringing more people to existing farms. Onley Herring in Pittsburgh. Rob Rufus is a novelist and musician who grew up in Huntington, West Virginia. His newest book, Paradise, West Virginia, was published last summer. I first became aware of Rufus through his first book, a memoir that came out in 2016 called Die Young With Me sort of his origin story. I spoke with Rufus recently about punk rock, cancer, and how his first book came together. Um, yeah, Diane with me uh, uh, was my first book. I started a punk band with my twin brother when I was, I mean, we were probably 13. And by the time we were 16 or 17, you know, we were playing 
locally at the YWCA all the time. We were drawing decent crowds, decent enough that uh, we actually got invited on the Warp Tour, which is your listeners don't know is like a huge, biggest traveling uh, music tour in the world. And um, it was about a month later, I, I got diagnosed with stage four cancer and I, I ended up in the cancer ward the next day and, and I stayed there for uh, years really. And um, my brother continued on playing music because we didn't want to lose that opportunity. And in my twenties, when I was cancer free, we, my brother and I basically just uh, toured in our punk bands, like, because that's all I'd wanted to do. I mean, we, just played basement shows and wherever we could and and ended up doing a lot of cool stuff. I mean, we got to go all over the world playing punk rock music. But I, I hadn't really dealt with anything I'd been through. I mean, I'd really kind of actively tried to not think about, you know, my cancer experience and all that horrible time. I mean, and that was a great thing about playing music because I was in a different city every night you know, you didn't have to talk about, you can meet new people and they knew you, they saw you as, as, as an artist or, uh, some traveling crazy musician. They didn't see you as a, a, a cancer patient with no hair or eyebrows, you know, and, but like, of course that catches up with you. And I started writing that book when we were touring and, um, I never expected to get published. Honestly, I went about it the exact same way. I used to try to get record deals when I was in middle school. I just made a list of a hundred literary agents and sent them all my, my manuscript, um, which in its original form was like a million pages. It looked like a suicide bomber manifesto or something. And I, uh, uh, I sent it out. I didn't expect to hear back from anybody and I heard back from a couple people and, and then it ended up getting picked up by Simon and Schuster and it, and it really, uh, it really changed my life. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so grateful for that. I understand you have an excerpt um, to read from Die Young with me too. I'd love to, love to hear it. Yeah, I do. This is um, actually about my brother and I first discovering punk rock in my cousin's basement. We sat in the basement all night. Anthony flipped from cassette to vinyl, CD to CD, then back to tape. Ramones, Descendants, The Humpers, Bad Religion, The Misfits, Minor Threat, Strife, Face to Face, TSOL, Screeching Weasel, Rancid, The Clash. All the songs were high speed. Every singer sounded angry. Even the love songs had an undertone of rage. Nat and I passed the liner notes back and forth. The bands and the photos looked different from many I'd seen on TV. These musicians I could relate to. I didn't feel so different from any of them. I felt in time with their beat. I connected with me so instantly that it seemed instinctual. The guitar players played the same chords over and over, and the drummers bounded, bop, 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 like madmen. The singers screamed or sneered or whined or mumbled, but it all connected with me. I felt the power in it. Music like this had the power to change people. It had the power to scare people, and I knew that from the start. But it didn't scare my brother, and it didn't scare me. From the first chord to my last chord, it's never scared me. Rob Rufus has been cancer-free for 14 years. He moved from Huntington to Nashville and still plays with his twin brother Nat in the Blacklist Royals and another band called The Bad Signs. He's also published two novels. I ran across the newest one at my local library here in Virginia. It's called Paradise, West Virginia. I picked it up and found myself pulled into a pulpy story of people who feel like outsiders in their hometown but find ways to connect. But I should let Rufus describe it for himself. Yeah, Paradise, West Virginia is um, both a murder mystery thriller and uh, 
social commentary. It's about uh, two children of a convicted serial killer who live in drug-addled Appalachia. And when a murder podcast comes through to do an episode on their dad, a local girl goes missing and the kids use it as a way to try to reopen their own investigation and prove that their father was innocent. Um, and uh, it's it's kind of a commentary on the situation up there. I mean, law enforcement is so overwhelmed that uh, anybody that's found dead who has a drug-related pop on their record uh, is pretty much written off. I mean, there's a, in Huntington right now, there's a, a 10-month wait if you want to get an autopsy. So most families are just like skipping over that. Um, it, it's kind of a crazy situation. And so this was my way to one, bring uh, attention to that and to uh, write a pulp novel. Cause it's, it is kind of a ode to my grandmother who is basically a character in the story. And she loved trashy uh, thrillers and I love trashy thrillers because of that. So yeah, it was, it was fun to, to write excerpts of my own pulp novels that I made up in the book. Yeah. Mama is such a, such a compelling character as, as mama's, as mama's often are. You mentioned, <laughs> um, you mentioned the, you know, the, the opioid aspect to it. And, and, you know, that's one of a few, I think, aspects that play into some negative Appalachian stereotypes that the people, you know, will take off. And, you know, you mentioned opioids, there's poverty depicted in the book, there's even snake handling. But those elements in the book, like don't, when I read it, they didn't feel exploitative to me. It all kind of felt empathetic. How did you do that? Well, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I mean, I, whether it's memoir or fiction, like my, Rule of thumb is like I, I'm. I don't try to sugarcoat anything because I feel like there's no way to build empathy if you don't humanize people, and you can only humanize people if you share the reality of the situation. And and um, so I just kind of tried to do that. I mean, the reality is, it's a horrifying situation. I mean, um, you know, one out of ten people in my own town are addicted to opioids. Like, and you know, some of these people are just being, they'll overdose, they'll nar- they'll get Narcaned, uh, they'll come back with even less, more of a diminished capacity because of oxygen deprivation, And but they receive no help, they receive no social services, they're just putting back in the same situation to suffer in perpetuity, overdose again, and I mean, my best friend growing up, who was a character in Die Young with me, my best friend Paul just just died. And he had um he had overdosed. He had relapsed, he'd overdosed, he'd been brought back to life. He was struggling to stay clean, but by then he'd already lost anything everything, very much like the characters in Paradise. You know, he he'd lost his job, he'd lost his house, he'd lost everything. And um, you know, he eventually relapsed again. He was found dead at the bottom of his stairs. And, uh, you know, it's heartbreaking. The whole, the, his, his whole neighborhood's like that. I mean, like 30 people from my graduating class have overdosed and, and died by now. So like, it's, it's very real and, uh, it's very trashy and tragic and scary but it's also just sad, you know, and, and it's not right what's happening there and what's uh, ignored by, by I feel like, most of the country. Like, it's very interesting to me what people latch on to as a gigantic issue at the time and what people could care less about. I mean, uh, like, and I, and I feel like it's really a great American tragedy what's, what's being allowed to happen in West Virginia. I'm I'm really sorry to hear about Paul. Obviously I didn't know him personally, but I kind of felt like I had a connection with him through through reading, you know, your book and beyond the circumstances of Paul's death. 
what do you want him to be remembered for? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I remember Paul, like he was a hero to me. Like, uh, he stuck with me when, you know, mortality is not something young people are, uh, great with. And when I got cancer at 17, he was one of the only people that, that really stuck by me the whole time. And uh, that's the kind of dude he was. He was the kind of guy that wanted to help people. And uh, nobody helped him in return. And it's it, it breaks my heart. That's Rob Rufus, novelist and punk rocker. He was remembering his friend, Paul Ziegler, who passed away in November. So many of us, like Rob Rufus, have lost friends and family to addiction. We think it's important to tell those stories, but also to continue to talk about recovery. It is possible to find help. If you want to learn about a recovery program in your community, please call the free and confidential treatment referral hotline, 1-800-662-HELP, or visit findtreatment.gov. Two musicians in North Carolina wanted to help prevent drug overdoses. So they began a project to distribute naloxone kits to local venues and help get the word out about recovery in their area. Matt Pikin of BPR News has their story. John and Cinnamon Kennedy formed their first band before they knew how to play their instruments. One day, John and our neighbor were like, we're making a band, and you're going to be the drummer. We started out as like terrible, 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 and then we got increasingly less terrible, and by the time we were done, we were all right. Over their 30 years together, the Kennedys have routinely put the cart before the horse. Neither had ever lived on a farm or managed a bar, but that didn't stop them at one time from trying to buy a peach farm or opening a brew hall. We were looking for something to sustain being artists. Yeah, we were just floundering. We were like, what are we going to do? And I thought if we were selling something tangible like beer, I was like, oh, that's totally going to work. <laughs> but it fell through, and in hindsight, we would have been the worst bar owners ever, <laughs> why, ever. Why do you say that? Oh, we just don't have any business sense. <laughs> yeah, very glad that didn't work out. The Kennedys are far more committed to their latest cause, preventing deaths by drug overdoses, particularly among musicians. They're marshalling connections to clubs, breweries, and other venues that hire local musicians to have either nasal sprays or injectable versions of naloxone on hand. It became so obvious with like that Venn diagram of, you know, overdose, musicians, recovery, harm reduction, and the fact that there was no one there being like, all right, every music venue in Asheville and Buncombe County, Western North Carolina, should carry naloxone, and that it's crazy that it hasn't happened before. The Kennedys met 30 years ago at Tiny Kenyon College in Ohio, where Cinnamon recalls working at a pub where John skipped out on a bar tab. They wanted to be writers, moved to New York, launched a literary journal, and took writing courses at New York University. I guess there's a point around maybe at 40 when what we talked about and shared was no longer, I think, literature or books or novels or documentaries or anything like that. It was always like music still, like, what's the next song? Have you heard the song? Hey, I just heard the song. Like, you should check out the song. We just found ourselves, at least for me, always talking about music until it became like the most prevalent art form between us. The Kennedys recall Ash from 9-11 reaching their Manhattan apartment. With two young children, they decided to move to Black Mountain 20 years ago into a house next to Cinnamon's parents. Cinnamon taught yoga. John spent several years writing for the Black Mountain News. Both helped John's stepmother build a video production company, which John still works for. She didn't know anything about video production, and we didn't know anything about video production, and it was the three of us, and we just started it. With just as much preparation, they decided to form a band that became known as the Egg Eaters. They put up wheat paste posters about the band long before booking a show. And we had like smoke machines and bubble machines, silly string, Teletubby costumes, robot costumes, all this bananas over the top stuff, which I think was kind of a disguise <laughs> for the sorry. fact that we were bad. Don't listen to us. <laughs> we were not good musicians. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you have enough? When they come, we back the game. 
John on rhythm guitar and Cinnamon behind the drums, the Egg Eaters wound up playing about 100 gigs in and around Asheville over eight years. In the beginning, I thought that was an asset. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Because we were like, we're the worst band you've ever heard. And people were like, yes, you Chill are. Planet. Being yes. bad was, was easy. And like towards the middle, when we got to be like kind of not good but not bad, that was tough. When we got good... The members of the band all were like, well, it should sound like this or it should sound yeah. like this. Everybody well, had different opinions about the music. And it at was that important. Point. John Kennedy said the overdosing issue hit close to home in 2010 when he rode in an ambulance with a brother who had overdosed. The Kennedys noticed overdoses growing in the local music community and decided to become practical activists, declaring themselves agnostic on drug use itself. As a nonprofit called Musicians for Overdose Prevention, they raise money through grants and grassroots fundraising for the naloxone kits, which can cost about $80 a piece. So far, they've distributed more than 300. Among the musicians that we know, I'm pretty sure that most of them know someone who's died and know someone who's in danger. And so that's why we're doing this, for those people who are just so worried about their friends. While many venues embraced their mission, the Kennedys said a few were deflective or resistant. Some of them were scared. Some of them didn't return our calls or our emails. They don't want people to think that people are doing drugs in their establishment. I think it came down to a public image thing. The Kennedys are now 190 episodes into a podcast called Holy Crap Records, which is devoted to underground music, and they're releasing compilation albums under the same name. Their goal for 2022, in their words, taking down Big Pharma. I'm Matt Pikin, BPR News. Remember the warm spell at the end of last year? Well, it melted a lot of the man-made snow at ski resorts. In West Virginia, it forced three major ski resorts to temporarily close. There's obviously been snowfall since then, but even so, climate change is bringing a lot of uncertainty to the winter sports industry. To understand how all this weird weather is affecting skiing in Appalachia, I recently spoke with Tom Price. He's the director of operations at Timberline Resort in Tucker County, West Virginia. And Tom, kind of walk me through how the season's been so far this year. <laughs> the season's been really, it's been really interesting. Mother Nature has been dealing a couple blows to the winter sports industry, um, but we, um, since we're we're new in the area and we've been making a bunch of improvements to our ski area. We've actually had a really successful start to the season, despite the weather. And when you say new, can you kind of expand on that a little? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the company I work for, Perfect North Slopes out of Indiana, bought Timberline Mountain in 2019. The ski area had gone into bankruptcy and they had an auction and the ski operators I work for purchased it because everybody knew that this place was a bit of a gym um, that just needed a little bit of new life put back in it. And so we were super excited to win the bid and got started. So we did a $16 million capital improvement project here and got up and going and we're just into our second season. Very cool. And like, how was last winter for you guys? Last winter, you know, when when you're starting up, everything's new. Right. Um, and, you know, COVID threw a couple of curveballs at us. It was a little different ski season than we've ever had. But we we were really happy with the season. The, the customers and the community were super supportive. And we had a really energetic and positive season. And the snowfall was wonderful. And, yeah, we we really couldn't have been happier with it. Now, from what I understand, you guys had built up your snow base um, and then there was quite the warming uh, before this most recent snowfall. And you guys kind of had to rebuild that. That sounds like a lot of work and time and money. Can you kind of tell me about that? 
Yeah. So it, it is. Mother Nature is always fickle, and you never <laughs> know exactly what she, what she's going to deal you. But yeah. So we had a we had an early start, and all of our snowmaking um, efforts early season were in mild temperatures. We can start making snow below 28 degrees, but we really love when it gets down to that 15 or 10 degrees for a long stretch. And we didn't have that early season in that November, December stretch. So we had the hill. We were up to 70% open before the the really warm stretch over the Christmas holiday. And during that time, we we did our best to keep the ski area open. But then right at the end, it just almost all the snow went away. So we've been taking advantage of the cold weather over the last week, and we've got the place, I think we hit 95% open at this point. So it's all come back to life. Now I'm curious, Tom, as we experience somewhat of a warming climate, it seems, could this be the new normal, that there might be several restarts throughout a ski season of rebuilding a base? Yeah, with our roots being in the Midwest, we're used to fairly extreme weather changes, and we only have a couple year reference here. But it does seem that the ski areas that are most successful really lean into snowmaking. So we lean into it. It helps us buffer out what might be the new normal with these extreme weather changes. And the entire ski industry is really, really leaning into the snowmaking technology. So in the big snow event that happened kind of in early January, I'm assuming that kind of really was a game changer for you guys. Did you see a big turnout from folks? We did. We had one of our busiest days ever on that first weekend after the Christmas holiday due to the snowfall. We had 15 inches on our mountain. It was a wonderful day of skiing. Natural snow is always a pleasant thing. You know, it makes it a little more difficult to get the roads clear. But once they're clear, the skiers come out in droves. Now, typically, how long do you try to make the seasons last for? I always start with a goal of Thanksgiving and an ending date of Easter. And so as long as it stays somewhat below that 28 degrees, do you guys continue to make snow here and there, even in March? We will. Um, It it becomes a a lot less frequent, but it's not rare for us to run our snowmaking. Well, Tom, thank you. I really appreciate you chatting with me. Yeah, no problem. That was Tom Price, Director of Operations at Timberline Mountain, speaking with me about the ski season in West Virginia. Last month, the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve experienced a wildfire that took days to contain. Curtis Tate joined a group of journalists to tour the area after the fire was out. He reported on the importance of fire in managing a healthy forest ecosystem. It's an unseasonably mild day in December, and from a parking area on the edge of the New River Gorge, you couldn't tell there had been a wildfire near here just days earlier. As we make our way down a steeply sloped trail, we encounter some young rock climbers who seem hardly bothered by what just took place here. Then it hits your nose. It's the smell of a smoldering campfire. And once you're inside the zone, it doesn't go away. The ground is black and ashen. Scorched tree stumps and branches are everywhere. This wasn't a big fire compared to the ones that happened out west. It affected 132 acres. The New River Gorge National Park and Preserve encompasses 70,000 acres. No one was injured or killed here, and there was no significant property damage. In fact, our National Park Service guide, Dave Beery, said the fire was beneficial to the forest. You can see what it did here coming through. It it burned up all those fuels. This is exactly what we would do if we did a prescribed fire in the park to try to reduce fuel loads. It burned off everything small through here and just left the you know, dry, uh, standing stuff that's, you know, live standing trees. And you can see there's not really, there's a little bit of black on a few of the trees here, but almost all of it's ground level. So springtime comes and all the new growth pops up, you're not even going to be able to see there was a fire here unless you really look close, I think. Beery said fire can help control invasive species that crowd out native plants. It can also reduce the amount of fuel on the forest floor, making it easier to contain future fires or making them less destructive. That's a change in strategy. For the better part of a century, it was thought that fires should be put out. In recent decades, fires have been set intentionally, including in the New River Gorge. 
uh, fire is a natural part of the ecosystem, so any plant that's supposed to be here should be able to adapt to fire in their ecosystem because it's a natural part of the ecosystem. Before people were around, lightning started fires and there was nobody around to put them out. So, you know, that was part of the, the problem. And actually, a lot of the problems we've had, especially more so out west over the you know last years, is that we put fires out and now you get bigger fires. And of course, climate change and all of that has really thrown a, a bigger wrench into that. But just really over the last, since you know, Yellowstone, Prescribed burns aren't the only tool available for managing forest fires. The fire zone in the New River Gorge included Nuttleburg, a coal mining camp that was active from the 1920s to the 1950s. That was one of our biggest concerns when this fire broke out, this being right in the middle of it. Nuttleburg is, you know, one of our major historic sites here. And it's really, talking about coal mines of that era, it's really probably the, the best preserved coal site representing that time period anywhere. Beery said he wouldn't want to start a fire intentionally near such a historic site. Instead, last summer, crews used leaf blowers and thinned out the fuel for a potential fire. Sometimes prescribed fire is not always the best way to do it. In this area here, it's not a place you would want to start a fire on your own because it's, I mean, it's great that this one did burn out stuff pretty nice for us, but as a fire manager, I'd be really concerned about trying to light a fire in something like this because these slopes here are just so hard to, to control anything. Though the fire came within feet of a structure that houses a conveyor belt used to transport coal from the mine mouth downhill to the tipple, it was not damaged. So what we do in an area like this is mechanical thinning. Again, to reduce the fuel loads all around these sites so when something like this happens, like what happened last week, when that fire gets to here, there's not as much fuel to burn and hopefully it stays off of the buildings. As Beery finished showing us around the fire zone, a light rain started falling. It soaks the blackened ground and restarts the life cycle of the forest floor, a cycle that includes fire. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Curtis Tate at the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve. Next, we'll visit another natural area. Max Patch is a grassy bald in the Pisgah National Forest, just outside Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, Max Patch. I used to go up there a lot when I lived in western North Carolina, back in the early 2000s. It's beautiful and easy to access. Now, I rarely saw anybody up there, but that's changed. Over the last two decades, Max Patch has gotten really popular. Most people would say too popular. It's overrun with visitors. A photo of Max Patch went viral in 2020, and not because of its beauty. This photo showed the area junked with trash and litter. So Forest Service officials banned large groups from visiting. Have the protections helped? BPR reporter Megan Kane hiked up to Max Patch to find out. On a sunny fall afternoon on the gravel path leading to the top of Max Patch, you hear the whistle of the trees as a bird circles the top of the bald. One thing Dick Ott doesn't hear, chaos. Fireworks, fires, drones, all the things that screw up being out in the, in the wild. And you'll see how pretty it is here in a few minutes. Ott volunteers with the Carolina Mountain Club and lives on the mountain. He recalls a fall night in 2020 when a drone photo captured Max Patch littered with clusters of tents and debris. This little area up here had 130 tents one night. No bathrooms, not enough toilet paper, not enough places to pee or poop. And you just had to go hide somewhere and... Uh, wasn't pretty. The photo went viral, prompting national attention and concern for the small slice of the Appalachian Trail. But this problem existed long before that photo. We've lived up here 16 years now. The usage has dramatically increased in the last five. Max Patch is popular for three reasons. It's an easy hike, it's listed on multiple websites for best hikes near Asheville, and it's widely shared on social media. The half-mile climb on a steady incline leads to a stunning panoramic view of the mountains in North Carolina and Tennessee, all just off of Interstate 26, is about perfect for the beginning hiker. Add in a pandemic with plenty of cooped-up people looking to get outside for some social distancing, and you have even more new visitors, many not familiar with proper trail etiquette. Paul Curtin is the Appalachian Trail Supervisor for the Carolina Mountain Club. People were kind of going everywhere, and, uh, and they were making what I would call scars across the bald. Human waste, cheap camping gear, even a stage from a wedding. All of it was left behind on top of the bald. Some even destroyed trees and fences for firewood. This is just killing me. 
They were pulling um, our, our blaze posts out of the ground. They were tearing them out of the ground and burning them. Curtin and other volunteers did their best to clean up, but the damage was compounding. You know, when you put your heart and soul into something and, and uh, you see people just wantonly destroying it, it's tough. It's just you know, total disrespect for the land. Jen Barnhart is the district ranger with the Forest Service that oversees Max Patch. She says a protective order was already in the works, but the drone photo finally provided the push to get it through. And then we're in the midst of COVID and um, with the, the drone shot with all the amount of tents, that was really an, another huge catalyst to the immense importance of getting this closure um, actually approved. July 1st, 2021, the protective order goes into place. No camping, no fires, no large groups or dogs without leashes. The list goes on. The effect was almost instant and the scars began to heal. This is the best I've seen it in a long time. That's Brandon Vickers. He came from Knoxville with his son. They like to camp a lot and Vickers has been coming to Max Patch for years. We would come up here and go sledding when it snowed because... It might not snow in Knoxville, but the mountains always got it. Ten years ago, no one knew about this place. Like 15 years ago, no one, no one knew about this place. There were about 30 people up on the ball the day Vickers visited, a dramatic reduction from last year. And just over a year from now, Barnhart and other stakeholders will reevaluate whether to extend the order. As of now, she says she thinks the restrictions on group size, dogs on leashes, and a ban on horseback riding will stay in place. Sunsets, a popular site on Max Patch, haven't been affected. People probably feel, well, we can't have any good things, but that I know is dearer to most folks and people have been thankful for that piece of it. The current restrictions remain in effect until July of 2023. I'm Megan Kane, BPR News. Well, today we've heard stories from across Appalachia, from Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Pittsburgh. And remember, we always like to hear from you, and especially what you've been doing outside. How have you been recreating? Write us inside Appalachia at wvpublic.org. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blacklist Royals, Blue Dot Sessions, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.